0: Listener production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn, and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine, and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times, and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. Today, my guest is someone I don't know very well, but I was so impressed by her CV and her reputation that I was keen to learn more. Rose Hersig is among other things, one of Australia's leading social forecasters and futurists. She founded and sold her own business, Pop House, which was one of Australia's leading agencies for innovation, social trends, and business strategy. And now she's the president of WPP. Prior to taking the helm, she was the chief strategy officer. So you can see that Rose is a doer, who believes leading means getting your hands dirty. Rose, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series and congratulations on your newish role as President of WPP in Australia and New Zealand. But can you tell us a little bit about what WPP actually does?
1: Great question. Great to be here, Helen, as well. I, I, I love it. I love talking to smart women. It's always fun. WPP what we call ourselves is the creative transformation company we're all about creative transformation and we really sell our imagination and we do it in four ways we either do it in traditional communications technology experience or commerce and so every piece of communication that any brand any company in the world might give to any one of its customers be it online be it through an app be it through tv be it through a magazine Whichever channel, we are there to create that communication piece. big part of our business these days is tech and commerce. We're growing pretty quickly in those areas. As we all know, everything's connected. And so in the end, our job is to help companies and brands creatively transform. So
0: do you create the concept or you create the concept and the execution? So you do television ads?
1: We do we create everything from the id to the ip which of course the client then owns that's a conversation for another time ip ownership but we create everything right through the line the idea itself all the way through to the production of the id to mobilizing that id through any channel you can dream of whether it's tiktok or channel 9 you name it we're there so really we are right the way through the journey of idea inception to id execution it's
0: an incredible business model, particularly now that the platforms have splintered so much. And, you know, I immediately went to the television concept because that's the one I'm most familiar with. But you talk about TikTok. How how many platforms do you deliver ideas on? Hundreds,
1: literally hundreds. We have a company called Hogarth and they're our production company and they automate a lot of this content through a myriad of channels. But For example, just yesterday I was looking at some of the favourite pieces of work that we have produced and none of them was for television. Most of them live in the world of technology or on some new platform, but a lot of them were things like, one idea that I love, Action Audio, we're helping Tennis Australia allow people that are blind to watch tennis through sound. So the way that a ball sounds when it's out or in, is determining a generation of people who have lost their sight to be able to watch a tennis match with the technology that we've created. One of our businesses, AKQA, has done that. So when you think about that as the idea, that's incredible because it has nothing to do
0: with anything that we've ever done traditionally. Fascinating. Um, And I could go down that path with you for hours, but the purpose of this podcast is to talk about leadership skills and how you um, have evolved as a leader and any advice you might have. So You're recently elevated to be president of this organization. It's a very prestigious role. Did you ever aspire to it or is this completely accidental? No,
1: I never aspired to being president and we chuckle at the title because it's not particularly Australian, but the kids that I work with do call me Madam President or my favorite one at the moment is El Presidente or El Bosso, which I quite enjoy. It's quite funny. But my background is small business, and I have never really aspired or spent a lot of time in corporate Australia. In fact, the first and only job that I have in a corporation is this one at WPP, which is hilarious. I've had three small businesses. I've sold three small businesses. I never thought that I would be running a business with 3,000 people. It was never the aspiration. The opportunity came up. London uh, are pretty terrific, actually, to work with. They were very keen But in the end, um, I'm actually running WPP like a small business, believe it or not, because the skills that you learn in a small business, and you would know this yourself, Helen, are are about getting the job done, and I'm a practicing leader. And that's an odd thing for a big company. Normally, you delegate. I'm a fan of leaders who can do and have the skills that they grew up with and can practition on a daily basis for their clients. They're the people that I really admire, and that's
0: kind of how I'm running WPP. Okay, so what do you think WPP were looking for when they took the decision to give you the role? I think they did want somebody who is
1: just a doer. My reputation is to get things done. I love simplicity. I love a simple strategy. I'm a strategist at heart. I was the chief strategy officer before I was elevated into this job. I think they just want somebody who has good common sense, who can make decisions quickly and well, has good judgment and hopefully gets it right more than they get it wrong but ultimately somebody that can mobilise 3,000 people to get it done without the red tape, without the hierarchy, and without the buzzword bingo. Because I'm not a fan of the buzzwords of the industry and I like people to give it to me straight and I like people to act once they've made a decision. And so we've stripped away a lot of the, the politicking and the buzzword bingoing and the pontificating and the postulating and all the things that, frankly, I find nauseating in a corporation. And I think you are as good as the job you do. And so the work is the thing that I care most about, not about how people make themselves look. Uh, The word you dislike the most? The word that I dislike or the phrases, I've got a dozen of them, but let's circle back. That drives bananas. Let's unpack this. I unpack presents at Christmas, folks. I don't unpack solutions. The word that I probably least, least like is journey, because hobbits go on journeys. Corporations don't go on journeys. Um, these are just a few of my favourites and there's a long list and I could spend an hour talking about them, but well, there we go.
0: In my world, it's empower. We're always empowering women. <laughs> and the other day there was a um, a slide that was empowering men and I was like, there it is. It's now, it's now snuck into men as well. Um, would you describe yourself then as highly creative given what you oversee? I, I Look, I think,
1: yes, I think the best creative people can solve problems laterally. I'm a fan of, you know, I will walk through whichever door is open to me, which really means if there's a way to get through something that is a little bit off-centre or lateral, I will always find a lateral approach to solving a client's problem, creating an idea, getting a SWOT team of our best brains across the 3,000 together. You've got to be really creative to navigate any big corporation. There are 110,000 people that work for WPP around the world. It's a big company. And when I need to make it happen for Australia and New Zealand. I need to get to people in London or New York or Chicago or anywhere and make it happen. And that's creative often, finding the right person with the power, with the checkbook who can make a decision, make it quickly and make it right for Australia and for New Zealand. So, oh yeah, that's a creative approach to running the business locally for sure.
0: What about being a leader of creatives? And and I was minded to think of that because you were talking about all those buzzwords because creatives have got all sorts of cool words they use that often don't mean very much.
1: Well, funny, I was in New Zealand on Tuesday with many of our creative leaders for a big pitch that we had. What I say to our creatives is we operate in the business of creative commerce. We commercialize creativity. Sometimes when I get um, the behavior that is a little bit more complicated or difficult, I remind them that there are ways to be creative and that would be in an art gallery and they should go and do that. That would be wonderful. Um, And they can exhibit their show and that's just as creative. But in the world that I live in, we are commercial and best ideas are ideas that sell product. Best ideas liberate the cash from people's wallets. The best ideas connect with Aussies and New Zealanders. The best ideas lift you up by your bootstraps and enlighten you to change behaviour, to stop smoking to not drink and drive, whatever it might be. That is how our creatives are judged. And everything else is kind of pushed to one side.
0: So it's all about the work. It always comes back to the work. You've led uh, your own business and now you're leading a very big business. Has your leadership style changed at all? You said before, probably not. Not that much. Yeah, not that
1: much. I like people to be on the hook. and, And now I think we all at WPP know that if you're leading one of our 10 networks, it's you in the driver's seat. And I do let people lead. I get out of their way. I am not a micromanager in the slightest. I've got great people, a lot of people who are much better at me in their jobs, doing an incredible job. My job is to unstick the things that they need unsticking locally or globally to get out of the way. But I like leaders and I lead the same way you lead by example. If you aren't prepared to roll up your sleeves and fix it, you cannot ask somebody who is a junior or somebody starting off in the business to fix it. You've got to show by example. And that absolutely 100%
0: I've kept. Let's go back a bit and talk about the business that you did start and then sold. Um, tell me the circumstances around you starting your own incredibly successful business.
1: Well, I'd come back from New York. Um, I did a year and a bit over there at an ad-, ad agency that doesn't really exist anymore, a place called Amirati Puris Lintas. And I kind of went up the rung Pretty quickly. I started as a junior planner, and by the end of the year and a half, I was a planning director. And my father gave me some really good advice. He said, Too much too soon is not a good thing. If you don't get out of this corporate world, and they used to call it the Golden Wing Lounge, which was an old anset term back then. My dad said, Get out, do your own thing, because you're going to get too used to making a lot of money. And I was making an incredible amount of money for like a 21 year old, 22 year old. I was like, I think it was $250,000. Wow. It's a crazy salary because I was a planning director and that was the salary. And my dad very quickly realized that too much too soon was bad. And so the decision was made. I thought, you know what? I saw this woman called Faith Popcorn in New York. She had a business called… Um, that's not her real name. That's not her real name. But she had a business um, that gathered social trends from around the world and you would help companies look at the trend and then help them create new revenue streams off the back of that trend. I thought that was pretty cool. And it was coming into the millennium, 99, 2000. And I just thought, that's a great idea. I think I'm going to see if I can make that work. Left Amorati Puris Lintas. They were not happy about that. They felt that they had built me up and that they should get the reward. And I'm like, no, actually, my mum and dad were the ones who built me up because they're pretty incredible parents. And it's that's not what you did. You enabled me by giving me a gig, but I certainly paid my way. And then some left and then thought, you know what? To hell with it. But when you're young, you're really stupid and really green and naive as I was, it never occurred to me that it could fail. Never occurred to me that I would have 70 people on a payroll and that it might fail. And I I just it's it's crazy now, um, as an older person, how little you think about when you're young. And it just forced me to get the first big client. The first big client was the CBA. And Comsec was the first thing we worked on.
0: Well, I, I as someone who started their own business. I guess I was fifty or forty nine. Yes, you're right. The twenty twenty two would be a much better idea because you've got a lot longer runway. You do. But wow, the pressure on you. That's the thing. And but when
1: you're twenty two you're, as I say, I was so naive, I didn't feel any pressure. All I felt was, if it doesn't work, big deal, I'll go get a job. You don't have a family, you don't have any assets, you have no money. I would say to anyone listening to this, any woman listening to this, if you have an idea for an eye business at twenty two or twenty three, go for it. I agree. Be green, be naive. be I mean, I was ridiculously naive, and only now looking back do I think, oh, my God, what did I do? I lost a million dollars in the second year of that business. I, I, so you know
0: just it's seventy people. Like yeah. that's a huge business at twenty two. So how did you go from? An idea to staff of 70.
1: Most of them were, they were not PAYG employees. This is the other thing. They were all um, paying for their own, you know, superannuation and tax. They were all ABN holders, but they worked full-time for me. We generated enough work that they didn't need to go anywhere else. And I just had a feeling that the right people for Pop House would be people who'd like to be self-employed, but they wanted to be tied to one brand or one company. And that, off the bat, took a lot of pressure off. They had to pay for their own tax, pay for their own whatever, There was no holiday. They made three times the market rate, the good ones. I mean, I've got kids in their mid-20s who bought their houses from the money in cash that they earned because they were so much better as strategists and as creative thinkers. But the quid pro quo was, you're not on the books, technically. You're your own person, but I'm going to give you enough work that I don't want you to go anywhere else. And the same workforce we had for like seven years. Nobody changed. So, The lesson for me is as a new business person, as a small business person, less risk. If you can de-risk it, and I just did because I wanted people who wanted to be aggressive in how they got work. There was a bit of a survival of the fittest. If you weren't good in that 70, you'd be let go. Didn't mind a bit of healthy competition, but it was just a different space to the one today where employers are expected to make people's lives perfect. Different time 20
0: years ago, put it that way. You were a trends business. PopHouse was a trends business. So just a little bit about um, the trends that you were seeing at the time and identifying and how important it is for all of us to kind of have our eyes open to trends.
1: It's hugely important. So we looked at, for example, share trading, and the only place that was doing it then was a company called TD Waterhouse out of the US. And we said to the CBA, you know what, we should be looking at online share trading. Now the thinking at the time by senior management was that a male broker would always have to buy shares on behalf of Australian customers and that Aussies would not want to do it for themselves. So the thinking was, well, actually, no, there's this thing called the internet. And back then it was still dial-up internet. There wasn't even ADSL. So we were just ahead of the curve. Will Aussies want to build a share portfolio? We thought, yes, so we should do that. We looked at breakfast for sanitarium, creating up and go. 40% of Australians skip breakfast every day. The trend was portable breakfast. What do you do? Well, you shove a couple of Weet-Bix in with a bit of soy milk. You put it in a drink and kids can drink it on their way to school or adults on their way to work. Two ads in a row for DMG, for Nova, that was an idea that we tinkered with and Kath O'Connor was then running Nova. We looked at not having too many ads because that would mean a premium space for the two that could advertise. So we would travel the world and we would see things that blew our minds and we would just bring them to Australian customers. Amazing. It's fun. So you sold it? I did. I sold it to STW in 2007. John Singleton saw me speak at a Telstra event and Singleton Ogilvy and Mather, which was what it was then called, today's Ogilvy, but they had the Telstra business and we were doing work for Telstra in the youth market. And he came to me and said, we should talk. I think what you do is interesting. We also had the CBA at the time, and Ogilvy were looking to grow their portfolio, and we had a lot of relationships that would have been valuable to Singleton, Ogilvy, and Mather. The deal was done very quickly. It was done within five weeks. It was a cash deal. There was no earn out. My feeling at the time was take the money and run, which is what I did. I was young. I wanted to buy a home. I I learned how to play the drums. I learned how to surf. I took some time out. But I'm a real fan of when you have a business, you're either all in as an owner or you're all out. And that was my approach. I'm not sure it's a healthy way. I'm a bit of bit black and white when it comes to work, all in or all out. And they bought it and, you know, I had some time off and it was the best thing for me.
0: Would you describe yourself as persuasive, as good at bringing people along to your vision?
1: I think I'm persuasive in mobilising and using facts to tell a story. I love numbers and I love statistics. And I think when I'm trying to, for example, convince one of my leaders or particularly a client, using the facts is incredibly powerful. And because I'm a futurist and I look at demography, I look at trends, I'm a factoid machine, I'm a walking factoid, I look at Australia. If I want to convince a client about multicultural Australia, 217 nationalities, 197 languages, one in two Australians speaks a language other than English. These are irrefutable facts that would make a client invest in other markets outside of Anglo-Celtic Australia. So to build an argument, you need fact,
0: and I'm very persuasive with facts, I think. I, I think that's a, a quality that's actually a constant in this podcast. Quite often, there's a, a woman leader sitting across from me who, who argues convincingly that, dealing in facts primarily is the fastest way to winning an argument. Um, So that's super interesting to hear you say. Let's go back to that bit about different eras of managing teams and expectations and how they've changed. And we're in a, you know, buyer's market at the moment for employees. They can pick and choose where they go. How are you finding the work environment at the moment? It's
1: such a change from when I owned my
0: own business. It's stark.
1: I get that people want to love what they do. I get that they want to have pride in their work. I get that they want to work somewhere or in a business that has real purpose. But I also get that there's an exchange. And the exchange is that if you're working someplace, you're going to do great work for that business and you're going to be at your best. I'm trying to flip the argument a little bit to say that WPP welcomes top performers. We want a high-performing culture but we were also incredibly kind and incredibly generous about how and where people work. Rather than start the conversation with what the employee wants, I think the employers are getting a little bit forgotten in this entire conversation. I've, I was speaking to a, to a fellow CEO the other day and he was saying to me that he's now getting demands from his people about if I don't get to work from home five days a week, I'm just going to go and work someplace else. And I think that's an unfair exchange. I think that with people today, we've all got to sit down and go, how do we all win? How do employees have a great place to work? And how do employers get the top labor or the top quality talent that they desire? I'm not sure where the pendulum is swinging, but I think the pendulum is swinging perhaps too far to one direction. And I think that we need to be, as employers, yes, listening to what people want and how they want to work. But they also need to recognize that we need them to do the best job they can.
0: So, in terms of your leadership style, then, do you find that that is sometimes challenged by this demand from, I think, particularly the younger uh, employees, um, that you have to impress them versus them impress you?
1: I think for sure. I mean, I've never asked somebody in our company to do something that I myself would not do. If I've got to work back late for a pitch, then that so be it. I think that the notion that it's an it's a fashion parade or a beauty pageant on getting somebody to join us versus somebody else needs to recognise that that's a two-way street. We've got to also be impressed with them. And yes, it's a market for talent right now and people can pick and choose. I just hope that they recognise that in picking and choosing, they turn up and give every ounce of their being to that organisation professionally.
0: So what do you do about that? So have you changed your leadership style or are you just more conscious about what your expectations and how you frame your culture?
1: I want people to know that I expect people to put in a good day's work. So my leadership style is to say, I expect you to overperform or do the very best that you can do. And if this isn't the right place for you, then that's fine because we're not going to pander to people who feel that they can potentially work a 20-hour week and come and go as they please and not tell us what's going on in their lives. These are tough conversations to have because the opposite to that is that someone may think that I'm a bit of a slave driver or I'm expecting too much of them. I'm not. I'm simply expecting them to do their job, as advertised in their job description. For me, the leadership style is to say, this is going to be a high-performing place where you're going to grow. You're going to have opportunities that, you, that will blow your mind. We'll send you to New York, to London. We'll move you to another company. For all of that effort and training, we expect you to really step up. And then I say, if this isn't the place for you, that's okay. Let's come to a mutual agreement and perhaps something else is right for you. I struggle with this idea that we've got to bend over backwards. I think we've got to come together and figure it out together. But I don't like the feeling of being down on bended knee, begging somebody to do
0: what is ostensibly their job. What do you do with the underperformers? How do you manage them? And you probably don't manage them greatly anymore. But how do you manage underperformers? It's a tough one. I think a lot of
1: what I'm finding is a lot of people are figuring out what kind of work they want to do and whether they want to stay in any organisation. A lot of people want to be self-employed. They want to do other things. One of the things that we've got in our industry isn't people leaving for another company who is a competitor, but they're starting yoga studios or Pilates studios. So they're actually changing their lives. For underperformers, every organization will have people, I think, that um, are okay and that's fine. I think for underperformers, you've, you've got to ask them to either opt in and step up or step
0: out. And I often have that conversation these days. I want to talk to you a bit about your books, um, yep. because one of them is about power, which is a topic that I've always taken a lot of interest in. Tell me a bit about the three of them and what drove you to write them and how you fitted that in. Yeah, well, the first one was um, about Generation X,
1: Seven Misses and Realities. It was timely because I'm in that generation and I wanted to write something that was all about myth busting and it was a bit of fun. It was, a, it was a door opener. So for the CBA and at the time we had Optus, we had Virgin, we had all these great clients. That door opened with that book. That book got me in to have those meetings. And that was really the reason right I wrote it. I needed to do something that was concrete. The second one, Ideas Generation, is about Innovation Australia. And I'm a really passionate supporter of the GDP of this country that should be from the ideas economy. It's very low. In America, 50 cents of every dollar comes from ideas, Hollywood, Microsoft, Google, Netflix, you name it. In Australia, I think we're roughly at 8%. So I'm really big on how do you stop digging up the land and exporting it over or the sheep? What else can we sell that isn't the service economy, which is tourism and education? What stuff is invented? So I'm a big fan of the Atlassians and the canvas of the world, right? Because they're inventing stuff and they're exporting ideas, which cost little because they come from the imagination and they don't make any trouble sustainably. They're the most sustainable thing we've got in terms of, you know, coal and other primary industry exports. The third book, The Power Book, I guess I wrote it because I like benevolent power and influence that is kind and gentle. I think that the way that people often have, you know, wielded power in the time that I've come up is uncomfortable to watch, yelling at people, making them feel small, diminishing them in order to make a person feel big. So I wrote a book about the best examples of power I've seen and some of the worst, And I've seen some things that just astonishing to this day, both good and bad. And as a leader, I'm just reminding myself often, my father said it all the time, wear your power lightly. The best leaders wear power lightly and it's their influence rather than their power that gets people converted to their side. Influential people win. Often power is, I think, used badly.
0: And I just wanted to write a book about good power. Let's talk then about your passion for women and leadership amongst women. And you're known for that. And I think that's how I first met you, actually, was I was told that you're someone in the industry that will always support other women. How do you see women empower today?
1: Well, at WPP, it's a great example of that. So we're just putting women in the leadership positions because they're the best people for the job. The question I often get is, Rose, are you putting these people in because they're women? And I'm like, no, I'm a, I am like a meritocracy. I'm putting them in because they're the best people for the job and they happen to be women. And the reason why they happen to be women is they're 50% of the population, which stands to reason that 50% of the intellect and talent sits with women.
0: Just want to pause you there for one minute. You are still, as the boss, you're still getting yep. asked that question. Yeah. I had somebody once ask me to go on the record and talk
1: about some of our female leaders as a diversity play, as an example of diversity. And I said, you know, I'm not going to do that because the women that are in the leadership positions, and we've got several, Katie Riggs-Smith, leading Mindshare, who's about to come in as Chief Strategy Officer, Amy Buchanan, one of the best leaders the media industry has ever produced, running GroupM, an incredible leader, Sally Hussain, leading Ogilvy, huge agency for us, another female leader. They are the best people for the job and they're women. That's the order, by the way. Um, But I still get the question about, is that me trying to be diverse? I'm like, no, that's me just trying to put the right people in the right jobs of whom 50% representative because of the population split are women. Amazing that in 2022, I'm getting asked that. Yes. Are you seeing any unintended consequences of that? I'm a huge fan of a meritocracy and I get very nervous about diversity plays where that issue comes ahead of talent. I don't care if you're black, blue, green, orange, five foot two, or like me, five foot 11 and six foot two in a pair of high heel shoes. If you are fabulous at your job, you've got a job at WPP. That comes first. I worry sometimes that in the interests or in the spirit of being politically correct, maybe we forget that talent must always come first in every job and then we look at the other factors. It's a tough one. As a woman, I don't actually feel that I've ever been discriminated against. Ever in my career because I tried to be the best person I could be at that job. I'm a strange one to ask because I often get other women saying, Oh, what are all the ch- stories you can share about harassment? and I don't have any because it always came back to the work. So it's a tough one. It's a tough one. The course correction might mean that we need to overcorrect to get people in jobs, get women in jobs. But they're 50% of the population. It stands to reason that they're going to be 50% of the talent.
0: So using your futurist brain, let's look into the into the future. What do you see for women in this country?
1: I see for women in this country true representation at the corporate level in the next 10 to 15 years. I think the more that women succeed and just do what they're already doing, which is running astonishingly good businesses, we will see the growth in corporate Australia, ASX, on boards, certainly in all the listed entities that want to have more women on boards. I think women are just getting on with the job because they're terrific at what they do and they are half the country. I think that we're going to get over ourselves a little bit. I hope that the little girls of the next generation, the five-year-old kids, little girls, this will be a non-issue. I hope that when they're my age, this is irrelevant. We are equal because again, the the representation should be equal because it stands to reason I go back to this all the time the talent is equal right across the board it should be if we're all human and we all have brains in our heads and we can all develop so i'm hoping this will be an on issue 30 years from now
0: 20 years from now if i think about the women listening to this podcast and i think about the women i mentor as part of our um future women mentoring and platinum plus program the one thing they all say to me Actually, there's two things they all say to me that's unfair at the moment. Is the ability to network that the time it takes to build networks that support your career as you go up the ladder, and to and it's a cliche, but confidence. What are your thoughts on those two issues?
1: Again, I mean, the confidence one is is hard because again, I look, I think about the women now. They need to have every skill before they put themselves forward for a job. Uh, the men have none of those issues. They have 30% of the things on the job application and they go for it. I think confidence is about really figuring out what you're great at and focusing on that. I'm not a fan of this learning or this school of thought that you've got to fix the things that are broken in your stuff. I actually think you just work to your strengths. And I think that often career advice to women is you've got to work on that. I don't work on any of the things that I know are not terrific about me because it's a lost cause. I'm not interested in improving those things. I work on the things that I'm very, very good at to be exceptional at them. So I think we need to train women really differently. We've got to get them out of their heads about the stuff they've got to work on. I think we've got to get them to work on the things that they're genuinely brilliant at. That's how you get to the top, I think. I think that we've got to change the way we talk to women about strengths and weaknesses, honestly.
0: And what about when it comes to networking and being time poor? How do you network and... What does the juggle look like for you? Yeah. So this is going to
1: be, I think, a controversial answer. I dislike networking very, very much. I'm not particularly – I don't think I'm bad at it. I think I can act my way through it. I think some of the job that I do has to be putting on a brave face and getting out there and pressing the flesh. But I actually think scarcity in the right way is very powerful. So when you turn up, people lean in because they want to see you and they want to talk to you. I think sometimes we overcommit and we do too much networking. A lot of my clients love me because I'm not making them come out to dinners or lunches. And when we talk, it's about business and it's important and it makes sense for them to be talking to me and it matters. And in many ways, I've got the best client relationships because they're like, oh, thank God you haven't invited me to some swish lunch. I don't have the time. So when they call me or when I call them, it's really serious stuff. It matters. It's it's an issue worth discussing. And so they see the name come through the phone and they go, Rose is calling. I'm going to take this. I actually am the anti-networker
0: networker. I think we should all do a lot less of it. So how would you rate your relationships then? Do you do you have strong relationships through the business community in, it, nevertheless? I really, really do. Yeah. I actually think stronger because yeah.
1: it's very, it's about the work, it's about the quality and there's a lot of truthiness to it. So they'll tell me the truth about something that may not be going well for them at WPP that we need to improve upon, but they can cut to the chase because there's not a lot of frou-frou to get through. It, there's not a lot of nicety. There's not a lot of chit-chat, but funnily enough, that honesty forges the strongest bonds.
0: Yeah, I think you make an interesting point. I mean, some people can have a lot of relationships, but it's the strength of the relationship that is the most useful. That's it. And, And I don't
1: spend necessarily enormous amounts of time with our biggest clients, but it's such a depth and quality. So they're calling me often for a soundbite problem to solve. They've got a board meeting. They need something. I can just write a one-pager in about 10 minutes. Everything they need to know, it's a complete cheat sheet. I'll ghost write anything for anyone. It's my job often. They take it. They're heroic. It's their win. No one needs to know about it. I will never disclose that. That's very strong and very powerful, and yet we haven't had to go and have a three-hour lunch for them to procure out of me some insights. I, I like a short, deep relationship, and I think you can in business these days, and I don't think a lot of people do it this way. A lot of trouble to get to the answer in business in Australia in 2022.
0: So you're president of this organisation, you've successfully built and sold your own business, you've written three books, where to from here? I miss working for myself, I have to say.
1: I don't know. I'm loving right now running WPP. We've got great leaders, really strong people who are running each of these 10 networks. We're a trim and lean organisation. We We run it really lean these days. I'm not a fan of too much fat and, you know, frivolousness and waste. I like practitioner leaders, so we've got a lot less layers of management. It's just very clean. I don't know. I could see myself starting something again from scratch and and going again with the knowledge that I now have because, again, I was a kid. I didn't know what I was doing. I made a lot of mistakes. I lost a lot of money. I made every mistake you can make. Uh, I think perhaps I'd have more fun with it now. Because I'd go crazy and I haven't lost my fearlessness, which is good. Wow. I didn't ask you whether you made any mistakes. I always ask that question. Biggest mistake you ever made? Was the losing of the one million bucks. That was a huge mistake. What did mistake. you do wrong? Where'd you lose it? We invested in a content division and <gasps> there was there was no ADSL 2+. plus. You can't download this,
0: for example, this podcast on Copper Wire. Um, big mistake, big boo-boo. Content is a tricky one. For, it's, a, it's a tricky one. It's a tricky so one. So many people burn on content. They
1: do. And we we did it in, you know, I did it in 2000. <laughs> this was like insane at the time, just a big mistake. The other massive mistakes that I've made is not saying, and I learned this lesson really quickly, saying no to not particularly nice clients. So I learned really quickly that if they're not right, if they smell wrong, they're wrong. And when Oprah Winfrey says it, doubt means No. The thing about growing in a business is you take on every client because you're so grateful for the revenue and the cash flow and you need it. My lesson is if they're not particularly nice people to deal with, they're not nice. Get rid of them. I've got some great client stories. <laughs> I'll tell them you at another time. <laughs> there you go. And even today at WPP, we've had a couple where they've just not been good and I've just rung and said, listen, you're not for us. We wish you well. Bye-bye.
0: Rose, fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us on the Future Women Leadership Series and, um, and sharing all those insights. Fantastic. Helen, thanks for having me. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe, Executive Producer, Jenny Goggin, Sound Production by Darcy Thompson.